0: The following is a live podcast recorded at the Disruptor Series Live. Fantastic. Well, here we are live at the 3% Movement. No, no, I'm going to back up. We are live at the 3% Conference. Here in Chicago. Yes. And uh, we are delighted because uh, today we have Amanda
1: Anayati, and it rhymes with anxiety. Oh. So that's how you know, now you know how to pronounce my name.
0: Amanda Anxi- Anayati, Rhymes with anxiety. You know, I I don't I don't find you uh, an anxious person. Although we're gonna get into no, some anxiety. No, but you do
1: know that I have had a gig as a stress columnist for a, almost a decade. Oh yes. So it's kind of perfect.
0: We're gonna get into that. Yes. So uh, let let me just do a little bit of business here. Uh, Amanda is an author, columnist, and communication strategist, best known for her self help book, Seeking Serenity. The 10 New Rules for Health and Happiness in the Age of...
1: Ani- anxiety.
0: <laughs> in the Age of Anxiety. And uh, you are also the uh, Head of Cultural Innovation for the 3% Movement.
1: Yes, indeed. So
0: there's some interesting things we're going to talk about. So, But first, you know, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So uh, we're here, by the way, uh, I, I love that uh, your book's titled uh, Seeking Serenity. Just for a moment, I was having this George Costanza moment, serenity now, serenity now.
1: <laughs> and I have never heard that joke before. <laughs> I'm
0: sure you haven't, but thank you for indulging me. We're going get to get into uh, your book uh, in a little bit. Uh, I do want to talk a bit about uh, 3% because you uh, are the, uh, the head of culture uh, innovation. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do uh, for the movement?
1: I would love that. Um, so I was... Was, I started out as a corporate lawyer and transitioned very quickly to become a, effectively a management consultant working on various aspects of culture. Um, I got a gig uh, writing uh, a column for CNN and PBS and other places about stress about you know roughly 10 years ago when I had a very dramatic thing happen in my life that kind of changed my path and after my book came out my book was sort of the culmination of a lot of the columns it was the coming together of all of the ideas that I'd been researching and writing about so once my book came out and really it was about stress but in a really interesting way it was also about all of the things that stress teaches us about how to live a happy healthy and productive life which is kind of counterintuitive right people are always trying to escape stress and my thesis was why don't we stop look at it in the face and try to figure out what it's teaching us. What are we doing that's not sustainable or not working? So it effectively becomes a design prompt, right?
0: By the way, we would call that disrupting stress. Yes,
1: exactly. And so after my book came out, instead of getting hired to work on, you know, the things that I'd been getting hired to work on, I started getting hired to work on company culture and organizational, you know, how were the teams working? How were the individuals showing up? Were they able to be safe? Safe? Were they able to be collaborative, and then that also led into a whole other body of work for me, which is what does the future of work look like? And okay, now yeah. hold
0: on. Yeah. just the, so that's the, kind of what I do. The listener, 3%. I'm sure, is just like, wow, this is a buffet of cool stuff. Um, now, what attracted you though to three percent, and, and and how how were you found? Because we're, we're going to get into your story because your story is amazing. Um, but 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 you know, in terms of a Uh, an entity that is looking to solve a specific uh, issue within advertising about changing the ratio of creative directors, how do they find you?
1: Well, here's what's interesting. People think that they're really working on diversity, inclusion, and now they also add belonging. What they don't realize is that I'm actually not a d D&I, diversity and inclusion person. I'm a person you bring in when you try to figure out how to take your people to a whole other level of creativity. And what I also knew from my work in all of these different industries, not just advertising, was that... Every step of the way, people put diversity and inclusion as a standalone pillar. The reality is that DNI and and belonging, it's the through line to everything. So that's how they found me. I was the person who looked at their work and said, oh, you all are pivotal to the future of creativity. And how do we begin to create new systems and ways of doing things? And so uh, it was a marriage made in heaven. Hmm.
0: All right. So I, w- I want to talk about your grand disruption, which uh, was cancer. So maybe talk a little bit about what happened to you? Because the story, just so I can yeah. uh, frame it up for people, um, Amanda gave a presentation at last year's 3%, which uh, talked about her life. You're going to hear a little bit about it now. And it was riveting. And I uh, uh, was just mesmerized by it. I think everybody was so inspired by it. So, But let's talk about this this crazy disruption that, that was a cancer.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. Um, and in fact, sort of my story goes back a little bit further than that. I have had you know, people look at my life and they think I'm making it up. That has actually happened. People think that I'm lying about sort of my history. I was. It
0: It, a... it is a Hollywood story. All right, well, all right. It's so crazy. So we're gonna go way back to the beginning. We're
1: gonna go. We're gonna, throw we're gonna way start back the Middle East. School.
0: All right, I want to hear it. Give it, so, give us the story.
1: I'll do the short version. <laughs> I was a child refugee um, from from a revolution. Uh, My parents couldn't get out, so I was kind of an orphan for about five years. I went from country to country, mostly in Western Europe, then ended up in the U.S. in the mid to late 80s and, you know, was here and have been here ever since. So I had had a very kind of rocky history as a refugee and as someone who was an immigrant and didn't quite fit in anywhere. And... had been an attorney, and that's not exactly an easy path. Oh,
0: no. The line just seems so linear. Uh, You know, refugee, immigrant, corporate lawyer. I mean, done.
1: I know. So, yeah. So, I was an attorney, very unhappy, had my kids. Uh, We were moving from – we went from D.C. to New York, where I was sort of in the shadows of the towers when they fell. And we lived 20 blocks away, and we're walking around the the zone with face masks on for, you know, weeks. And then we moved from – New York to the Bay Area. I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old, and I felt like I had a clogged milk duct, and my mom was in town, so I went to get it checked out. Y'all, it was late stage cancer. It had been not growing in a lump, but it was sort of like a flat sheet, which is why nobody found it till it was stage three.
0: Now, you know, you are uh, being very kind and giving us the short strokes and this... um... (sighs) You know, almost conversational, chatty style. But this story, uh, again, when when you when you lay it out, I I remember first hearing it, thinking to myself, "Wow, if it weren't for bad luck, this woman would have no luck at all." And yet, you took what seemed like bad luck and disrupted it. So uh, you know, again, bring us back to uh, what you started to do with this, you know, this knowledge of, oh my God, something is happening to my body.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, up until then, everything that happened, I didn't really think that I was going to die. Right. So the revolution happened. And I guess I always was sort of, you know, my mom, it can be a very pessimistic realist. And so in, in direct, Uh, in direct contradiction to that, I always tried to see the upside of everything. So up until I was diagnosed with cancer, I thought, I mean, no matter what happens to me, it's not like I'm going to die, right? But it's a hell of a thing to be diagnosed with cancer at a young age. And, you know, I'm not saying, the fact that I had a one and two year old made it really, really tough, right? I mean, it's tough always, but the fact that you're staring at these two babies walking around and they're telling you that your chance of being alive at the five-year mark is virtually nothing. So it really changed everything. And they say that cancer, it leaves, it's such a shocking thing to hear that it actually leaves a mark, a literal mark on your brain, and I'm, I'm not surprised. So I was sitting there, I got the news, and all of a sudden, the ceiling felt like it was really close to my face. So it sort of disrupted this sense of time and place and space, it was crazy. So I was diagnosed, they told me the statistic of whether or not I would be alive. I told them never again to tell me any statistic after that.
0: What was the statistic?
1: I think I had like a 2% chance of being alive at the five-year mark. It was horrific. I mean, it was so bad that I blocked it. what's
0: with these percentages from 2% now you're with the 3% movement? I know, right? What's
1: going on here? I don't, I know. Don't tell me percentages. (laughs) Someone made made the mistake of telling me a percentage years later. I got up, walked out, and never went back into that doctor's office again. A 2%
0: chance of survival. At the
1: five-year mark. Wow. So I knew that I was in trouble. And I knew that even with all the conventional medicine, I had no chance because it was so bad and it had spread and it was a giant tumor. So, what I did was I started to, A, just pray and really bemoan the fact like the thing that I was saddest about, A, it was my kids, and B, it was all of the things that I thought I was going to do and I hadn't done. Oh my
0: God, how depressing that could be! It was
1: horrific. It was, it was, they call it the dark night of the soul. I had the dark night of the soul, man. It was...
0: And by the way, were you a religious person up to this point?
1: I mean, I have always been a deeply spiritual person. I grew up in the Baha'i faith, um, which believes that all the religions come from the same God. I mean, so effective. I also, you know, we believe in Jesus and Moses and Krishna and Buddha. So, so I was a religious person, but I also you know, lost my way and lost my faith. But, you know, I, have you heard the story of what really saved me? Did I tell you about Star Trek?
0: No, but lay it out for <laughs> us here. We are intrigued.
1: So when I was little in Iran, they used to have Star Trek, and it was called Pishtoz <laughs> Faza. I don't even know how that That's translates, catchy. man. <laughs> right, I know. And so you're listening to Star Trek, but it's dubbed in Farsi, right? So you know how you see those shows and the mouths are moving, but then they're saying, my name is coming like you. have no. And Spock's saying that.
0: Yeah, beam me up.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I continue to watch Star Trek. Um, there is a concept in Star Trek called the Kobayashi Maru, do you all know what that is? It is that all cadets in the uh, Federation, and Starfleet Federation, um, have to go through this exercise, and it's a no-win scenario. And there's only one person who ever got through it, and that was Captain Kirk. And he effectively went in and he reprogrammed the system. And when they pulled him in front of the, you know, the, his... his uh, professors and they said, why did you cheat? He said, I wasn't cheating. I just don't believe in no win scenarios. And so I went in and I Uh reprogrammed them. So I was sitting there and I couldn't sleep. And I was, you know, in the dark and I'd lost, you know, six pounds in a week. And it was just a horrific time. But I remember thinking about what if this was this it felt like a no-win scenario to me, given mm. the numbers, and I thought to myself, what if I were to rewrite this story? How could I rewrite this story? So I was an attorney. I knew how to research. I started to research stories of everyone who had had miraculous recoveries mm. from really bad bad illnesses, not just cancer, but everything. Mm. And so at the end of that week, I had a whole list of stories of people who had come back from no-win scenarios.
0: Wow. And so what kind of things did you pull out of those? Like, what were those? So
1: there were some really random things, and you, we would sit here and laugh our asses off about some of the things I actually did during that period. Like I remember this one thing. I had a girlfriend who would go with me to some of these. We would sit in front of this thing that kind of looked like it was like a metal thing and it lit up and it spun around and it was in somebody's basement in the Bay Area. And it was me and my girlfriend and a couple of old ladies and like a cat Who was recovering from something? (laughs) It was like
0: I feel like like a sitcom here.
1: So we did that. I did what was you know now you would call an energy work, but Mm. back then it was felt like acupressure and hypnotism. Y'all, I did everything. I took you know wheatgrass shots, and I just did the most random things. And I'm not even going to embarrass myself by telling you about everything that I did. But if I was able to do it, it was, you know, there are things that make sense to you mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Diet, exercise, mm-hmm. taking yourself out of toxic situations, mm. doing the things that you always wanted to do, but you didn't really feel like you had the permission to do. I mean, it, it makes sense, right?
0: And do you feel that uh, because you your mind was thinking like Captain Kirk, I'm not going to believe the statistic. Do you think that translated to, to you in some physiological way?
1: I think that we know what we know about traditional medicine, which is phenomenal for treating acute disease. I don't know that we know everything. And that's science, right? Science is the idea that you can question things Dogma is the idea that something is hard set in stone Mm. and it cannot change. So I approached my recovery like science and not like dogma. So in that sense, I tried lots of things and I don't really know what worked, but I made it past the year mark. I made it past the two year mark. I blew past the five year mark. I remember at the five year mark, Mm. uh, the doctor said, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it because obviously it's working. And so... I don't really to this day know why, but I think the fundamental, most important takeaway for me was that our stories about where we are and what can happen really matter. And that doesn't mean that you didn't win or you didn't succeed if somehow, you know, if I had not made it that would have been a legitimate version of the story as well, right? Mm. Because somehow we think that life and what happens to us somehow is within the boundaries of birth and death and as if death is Mm. not having succeeded. The reality is that I'm not assuming that death is sort of the, the boundary of it. I'm assuming that there might have been a scenario where I would have passed away and gone on to do something else and I would have succeeded. At the end of the day, I don't even know.
0: Uh, Well, I don't know. I feel like uh, you had to succeed this way because you had to tell this story because...
1: And I'm sure you must have helped
0: so many people.
1: And there's so many people with stories like mine. It's funny. This morning, somebody did a piece on me a couple months ago. I didn't even think about it. I went for a photo shoot. This morning, I got a text from this woman. who She was at Sloan Kettering getting her mammogram. And she said, I looked down at the cover of this magazine, and you're in it. And you're here with me. And I'm doing, you know, she's, she's a cancer survivor. And I'm going through it today. And it occurs to me how many people look at the success of my recovery and it becomes a pathway for them. Oh without question So I take it very seriously.
0: That's great. So, I mean, this story, I'm I'm feeling it now even as you're you're telling it here. Um, How does this uh, segue into the book, though? What what happens
1: next? So I wrote a series of six um, pieces about having been diagnosed, having gone through surgery, chemo, radiation. I did the whole thing, right, in addition to all the other stuff. And some and I, a few of my friends read it. I put it up on a post, mm-hmm. um, on a blog, and then it got passed around, and eventually it made its way to the editor of CNN Health who wrote me and said, people write about their cancer, but I've never quite read it this way. Can we run these? So she ran them, they did really well. Then she came back and said, I would love for you to continue to write for us. I said, like a column? <laughs> she said, oh, don't get carried away. <laughs> A couple of months later, she gave me a column, which was awesome. Good for you. And the column was about stress. So I was doing my job as a consultant, but also regularly contributing about every single way that we experience and address stress.
0: And I think uh, you know, we're, 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 we're certainly seeing it throughout culture, and I'm certainly hearing it throughout uh, the 3% conference uh, over these last two days. So mental health. Mental health yes. in the workplace. Are you, yes. are you seeing more of that coming through uh, You know your workflow?
1: So interestingly, to me, stress and mental health, and some of it is physiological, right? I mean, it's stuff that we go to the doctor and we address and we take medication, and there's some really good medications out there to address a variety of mental health issues. Um, some of what we are experiencing is dissonance because we are evolving as a human race, right? I mean, the, the issues that we are addressing, if you look at them, really they're issues of sustainability. Can we be sustainable treating each other the way we're treating each other? Can we be sustainable if we are treating the environment the way we are, if a majority of the people don't get to have their voices heard and don't get to bring their geniuses to the table? can Is this a sustainable way of living? And the answer in lots of these ways is no. So what does that mean? It means that we're gonna suffer until we stop and have the courage to address these issues head on and also have the courage to see the possibility of a new pathway, right? We see our institutions collapsing around us. And instead of saying, how do we create new ways that are just and sustainable where people can shine and show up and deliver excellence? And instead of saying, Gosh, let's go in this direction. We keep trying to fix the old stuff that right, doesn't right. work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: It, needs, it needs to be, you know, use our word, disrupted, destroyed, you know, and, and and rebuilt. Yes. Now, for for three percent, um, what do you think's next for this movement? So, you know, I feel you now this is the, the eighth uh, conference uh, yeah. that the movements had. I've been I've been since the first one. Uh, I've seen an evolution. Uh, I I am uh, astonished. That there are so many men here. Yeah, uh, I remember the I first the first three percent I went to. I would think it was you know half a one percent of of men, and uh, and I think the tenor of it's changed too because yes. I, I think it was quite militant. I mean, it was tough being a guy yes. in that room, and rightly so. And I, I, yeah. you know, I, I sort of really grew from that. Yes, this event, twenty three percent men. I think it feels like more.
1: Yeah, uh, it does.
0: Right. So where are we in the movement?
1: We are. I. I mean. I love that you're asking this question. I think we have a. There's an ambassadors program called Three Percent Men. We've done it. Recently unrolled, <laughs> um, run by Sally Ali. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting in a session this past week, and it blew me away. I just saw two high schoolers on stage. They
0: were incredible.
1: They were incredible, in conversation with. Ben Gordon, Cat's high school uh, son. And I look at the generations of men. I look at the millennial men. I look at the Gen Z men. The next phase is, I think, less about women, although there's always evolution to be had everywhere. But I think men are shackled, because we have shackled men to this notion of who they're supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And my God, it's so limiting. It's so limiting. And I think that is the new frontier, is the ability to allow men to spread their, their, to, to, to take up the entirety of the space that they have been given, instead of making them, shackling them and putting them in a corner and making them be a very certain way, ways that they can't bring their heart to the table and their intuition into the table, and, you know, they're There are things that we... I I was in a session where they were talking about all these sort of feminine qualities. And I was looking at them and thinking, I know a lot of men who embody those qualities. Mm. I know men. I love Chance the Rapper. Do you know why? He is such a human. I mean, I look at him and the ways that he shows up with... Some of the these qualities that we think are traditionally feminine, and this man shows up with heart and vulnerability. And I mean, there's so much about I, I love this man.
0: And by the way, I, I also see, uh, you know in, in in our in our workplace, that women are transforming as well and taking on a lot of traditional male characteristics yeah. you know of, yeah. of of being confrontational and and being strong uh so there i don't know maybe we're sort of getting to a uh, a balanced humanity i don't know what to call it yet oh i love
1: i love that this notion of balanced humanity i think ultimately it's about being able to just take up all of the space you've been given mm. and maybe it's a little corner maybe it's a thimbleful mm. maybe it's a universeful maybe it's you know, the worlds of God. I have no idea. All I know is that the ability to just embody who you are and who you were meant to be. And if you look at these generational ways that they're showing up, that's where they're going. They're Mm. questioning all of our freaking shackles. (laughs) I'm very comfortable with that.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's good. All right, Miss Amanda, you know, two years in a row you are Uh, a revelation and an inspiration thank you so so much for having me thank you so thank you so much for being here and and everybody please uh, check out this book Seeking Serenity The 10 New Rules for Health and Happiness in the Age of Anxiety Amanda thanks a lot
1: I appreciate you thank you so much
0: you've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York craving more disruption? visit us at
1: tbwashydayny.com